how do we recapture that sense of being supported and nurtured by life, by nature, when we live in a human-built environment? And I think the answer for me, and hopefully for some other people, is, well, it's right here in our biology, right? You know, we didn't exit nature. We created a separation between our local organism and the biosphere uh, that's artificial. And we're just as tied to the biosphere as we ever were. And it's just as present in our bodies as it ever was. And with a little cultivation, we can notice that that's true. And to me, that's enlivenment, is noticing that nature is right here, right now, in this body, in all the bodies around me. In a world swamped by antithetical division, we desperately need those people and communities actively cultivating synthesis. Finding intersection, integration and common ground amongst so much seeming separation is a sacred calling. And Will Meacham embodies that calling perfectly. Raised a rational atheist, he initially pursued meaning and purpose through academic knowledge and became a successful ophthalmologist, while all the while feeling the call to self and world tugging at him in a very different direction. Serious mental and physical ill health led him to finally heed that calling and seek to heal himself while simultaneously exploring the possibility of healing the rift between science and spirituality. What arose out of that exploration is his creation, Mindful Biology, a profound and elegant body of ideas, and perhaps more importantly, practices, that open a doorway back into the living world, and back to our true nature, by experiencing our sensate body intimately. I started our conversation by asking Will to share some of his life story and some of the motivations that guided him along his path of mindful biology. Like so many things, it's a long story. To make it brief, but to start at the beginning, I'd have to say that what set the stage for it was my upbringing, which had a lot of chaos and trauma in it, which I think is pretty common these days. So I entered my young adulthood pretty confused and pretty chaotic in my behavior. And almost right away felt like I needed help with that. And I believe I've been working on that ever since. I found a lot of solace in nature as a teenager and probably wouldn't have gone to college if I hadn't found it so healing to spend time outdoors. I really went to college in order to pursue a career in field biology. I wasn't sure what that was going to look like, but that's what I wanted. But partly because of my insecurities, I got sidetracked and ended up moving in the direction that was considered more competitive and prestigious at that time, which was biotechnology, medicine, that kind of thing. And I did well enough. I mean, I succeeded. I became a subspecialty surgeon. And I was certainly proud of myself, but there was definitely something lacking in the way this was landing in my heart. I think that the skeletal issues that started developing were probably related in part to the stresses that I felt emotionally, but there were also stresses from working as a surgeon. I had injured my neck as a kid uh, and it wasn't a big injury, but the work that I was doing as an adult made it worse, made, made those pathologies worse. And eventually it got to the point where I didn't think I could continue to function as a surgeon, or at least not, not to the, not to where I was doing the kind of quality work that I of course felt was necessary. 
So I left my career kind of thinking I'd just start something else. I'd go back into ecology. It would not be that big a deal. I'd just retrain. But it hit me very hard to leave the career. And I had a psychiatric meltdown of major proportions that started with a suicidal run uh, that landed me in a psych unit where I didn't really get much better. After about two weeks, they sent me home, I guess, feeling that I was safe enough. And um, shortly afterwards, I experienced something that the psychiatrist diagnosed as a manic psychosis, but which I've always considered a very profound and long-lasting series of religious or spiritual visionary experiences. Before I had the spiritual experiences, uh, as I call them, whatever belief I had in something kind of deeper or more mysterious was, was fairly thin. And afterwards, it became sort of overwhelmingly obvious that there's a much deeper story going on here than the standard bioscientific model, which is, of course, that we developed our consciousness very late in the evolutionary game. Uh, Everything up until then was purely mechanical and unaware. And it's all a kind of accident that we're here at all. And it has no ultimate meaning or purpose or anything like that. Uh, I could no longer hold that view even remotely after all this happened. But it was difficult to figure out what came into its place. Uh, The visionary experiences themselves had several different elements. One of them was strongly Christian. I had been around Christianity growing up, not in my own immediate family, but in some of the extended family. So I tried that for a while. I tried to move into a more traditional Christian direction. And that worked for a little while, but not for more than maybe a few years. And then I tried yoga and Buddhism, and and those actually felt much more consistent with whatever was going on in my consciousness. And at some point, I was on a Vipassana mindfulness uh, retreat, and they were doing a kind of detailed body scan they were leading us through. And of course, I have a lot of biological knowledge, anatomical knowledge from my background, and I found that I was relying on that as they were going through this. Uh, you know, they would say, feel the airflow at your nostrils, and I would kind of envision a lot more, you know, the, the mucosal membranes, the moisture of them, the way the air is being humidified and warmed on its way in. And, and that seemed to be very rich for me. And this was a beginning retreat. So they had these discussion periods and I told the instructors or the teachers what I was doing and they were supportive and other people in the group were curious and asked me to kind of write this up as a meditation they could take home, which I did. And that's, that's when it started. And so what it's evolved into over time is I'm trying to find ways to take this wonderful monument of knowledge that we have about biology, the cosmos, the human body, and bring a sacred or reverential element into it. And I think there's a lot of work being done in that direction. Uh, I I find all sorts of books and so on. Many people are exploring how do we take this scientific information we have and, and see it from a more sacred, holistic, organic uh, perspective, whatever the language might be. The other thing I'm trying to do, which seems to be a little less common, is to make an experiential practice out of this, right? So that it isn't just more concept, like, okay, now we understand that science tells us all this stuff, and rather than thinking it's fundamentally material, we'll think of it in some other way. And that's, I, I think that's very important. But in addition, spiritual traditions offer practices and they offer direct experiences and they connect us with a mystical dimension in our consciousness. So my question has been, you know, can science become something like that? Can it lead us into the mystical connection, the, the, the mystery, the felt sense of, you know, sort of awe 
that goes beyond conceptual awe to a kind of embodied sense of vastness and and mystery and surrender, you know, all of these things that those of us that practice are familiar with. Can the science be a pathway into that for people, for certain people? It's not going to be for everybody. And then over time, as I've looked at it, I thought, well, you know, I'm, I'm trying to kind of actually, and this sounds a little grandiose, but I'm sort of trying to build a religion, but not, not exactly a religion, but something that serves the function of a religion, right? Because what often happens is people reject religion because, of course, there's a lot wrong with the traditions that have come to us from the Western side over you know, long periods. And, and maybe they'll pick up an Eastern tradition or whatever. And, and again, you know, there's lots to choose from. But could science in a certain way also be an option for people that there could be some way to have this scientific information become a kind of sacred knowledge associated with community and communal practices the way religions do, right? They have their sacred scriptures and they have their communities and they have their, their you know, rituals or practices. Could something like that be built? Uh, and, and the idea isn't to be like totally secular about it. That's not really my approach, but more to use the really awesome factual information we have, you know, about reality and matter and quantum mechanics and the cosmos and galaxies and, you know, the cellular complexity and all this stuff. Uh, how do we take that out of the realm of the conceptual or, or, or add to the conceptual dimension with a more experiential approach? So it took a little longer for me to go through, but that's what I'm doing and that's where it came from. All right, sounds fascinating. What immediately came up for me then was that science is already a type of religion. You know, it has its doctrine, it has its articles of faith, and it has its priesthood in the scientists. But it doesn't have... There's nothing fundamentally sacred about it. I think the, that's absolutely true. Um, and I think the problem is how we define science. We hand the word over to people who claim to be the arbiters of what science is, right? And so they have a particular worldview and a, and a particular doctrine and uh, they're fairly dogmatic and insistent about it, no, no question. Uh, so it has certainly the fundamentalist quality of, that some religions have, for sure. You know, the question I think is, do they really have the right to define science for the rest of us? You know, the scientific method is really just be open to what you see empirically uh, and and interpret it as best you can. Uh, the way it's practiced, it does seem to have relied heavily on a dualistic view of things. You know, people are separate from nature. We're going to, you know, control it and isolate it and, and look at it. And, you know, I guess that's worked for a long time, but that's, that may have been a kind of, you know, basic approach that science needed to get started. But I think complexity theory and all these other things that are coming up now are making it obvious and, and quantum mechanics and the role of the observer and all this stuff you're making it clear that that sort of simplistic view of science that worked for a couple hundred years, it needs to be transcended. So these old school scientists who are insisting on, you know, this radical materialism, they, it would be, it's not much different than somebody who is from a fundamentalist religion and says, this is the one true religion so their attitude is this is the one true science, right? So when you discovered this, this way into a spiritual practice that began to weave in your, your education and your, you know, your professional life in the medical world, what changed for you? How did that? begin to affect your life? Well, it's kind of taken over my life, I would say. Um, it is my religion, right? 
you know, it, it, it does everything for me that religion does. I have a little community of people that come to my classes. I practice it when I meditate. I read uh, about science and biology from all different perspectives, you know, sort of traditional science, you know, so-called, you know, mainstream science and, and more uh, flexible views and, and then some highly skeptical views and, you know, I, I mean, highly um, speculative views. I, uh, you know, read all this stuff and take it in, try to keep as open a mind as I can. Uh, and I move through the world much more aware of how oxygen is coming in you know, connecting me to the plants and suffusing my body with this possibility of metabolizing the foods that I eat that also come from the environment. And, you know, when I use the restroom, I'm aware of, you know, the, the other side of this connection that I'm returning all this back to the earth. And even every exhale can be experienced in that way. And, I can sit in meditation and kind of imagine all these neurons in there vibrating away and all the micromolecules, you know, that are involved in that. And then whatever's, you know, going on at the subatomic realm and this whole thing is creating this, you know, experience that includes sight and sound and touch and, and it's just a sense of aliveness, uh, et cetera. So, it has utterly changed my life. And I, I think you use the word, you know, when I discovered or something like that, and it, it's more like it discovered me. That's really the way it feels like I was in such a state of dismay and despair when my career fell apart. And, and for years afterwards, I was trying this conventional thing, going to this graduate school, taking this job and couldn't hold any of it together. It was always falling through my fingers. And then this started to, come into my life and all of a sudden I felt more stable and purposeful and I uh, felt like this was what I've been meant to do all along, uh, that it just took this much time for me to get the life experience necessary. And so it feels like a tremendous gift from the cosmos because otherwise life would feel kind of pointless and empty. And I might buy into that stark materialist view that says it's just random and meaningless. When I first came across your work uh, and I read your essay around enlightenment and enlivenment, that really struck a chord with me. And I think that's what you're describing very eloquently and very richly. I can feel, you know, when you're describing the, the life inside you, you know, and I tune into that, I can I can also sense into that. I wondered if you could just speak a little bit to that the kind of subtle nuance between enlivenment and perhaps the seeking of enlightenment so i went to college as i said largely because of my interest in nature but very quickly i got swept up by the intellectual environment and I had been kind of neglected and ignored as a kid, and I wasn't a particularly good student uh, in primary school and high school. Was usually getting in a lot of trouble, getting mediocre grades. But I got to college and something clicked inside me, and all of a sudden I was identified as somebody with a lot of academic potential, and I started to get a lot of attention for that. And... I built on that and became quite cerebral, right? I really built out my mathematical skills. I took lots of math and physics classes as well as biology and I was identified as having a strong math ability. My father was a mathematician, so part of, part of it was probably genetic. He, he was a mathematical physicist. So I had that ability and, and that was recognized and it was very rare in biology at that time for somebody to have that skill. So I, I leveraged that. I had low self-esteem, low self-opinion. And here was this one thing that I was getting an enormous amount of praise for. And so that became my whole experience. Well, then when I came to spiritual practice, you know, once I started to like really take it seriously, like this was going to be my focus, it was very natural to approach it cerebrally and to think about 
consciousness and the origin of it and you know these deep metaphysical questions and and also to kind of glorify the the raw experience of consciousness the the glittering clarity of having a mind so this is my use of the language i'm not saying that this is what enlightenment means for everybody but for me it really meant my mind my mind is going to become utterly clear. It's going to see to the depths of reality. It's going to transcend all this earthly difficulty, and I will be free. Well, you know, that didn't work out, right? I mean, I, I, I did get a lot of clarity, but I didn't feel free. The enlivenment frees us by helping us understand that there's nothing to break free of, right? That we're actually in a supportive environment. And so enlivenment isn't about transcending reality. It's about finding a home within it. This is, again, my take on it. And I look at it as you know, very similar to what Aboriginal cultures must have experienced, living directly in nature, feeling supported by it, knowing they were dependent on it, being in communion with it on a daily basis. How do we recapture that sense of being supported and nurtured by life, by nature, when we live in a human-built environment? And I think the answer for me, and hopefully for some other people, is, well, it's right here in our biology, right? You know, we didn't exit nature. We created a separation between our local organism and the biosphere uh, uh, in everything that humanity built, too. I mean, like it or not, what we have built is a product of nature because we are. So nature continues everywhere. Um, and the real issue is discarding the notion that there is something wrong with the world that we somehow need to rise above and tinker with. Um, Instead, it's really much more about just settling into where we are. And then maybe we would have less craving and there'd be less insistence that I've got to have more of this and more of this and more of this, and you better not take it away from me, et cetera, right? Because we'd already feel like we're complete. So I'm interested to know, once you became... You know, once you found a spiritual practice that that was really working for you in terms of this kind of beautiful synthesis between uh, your biological interoceptive development and your ability to sense inside yourself and how that began to open life up again for you. Um, I'm interested how that began to affect your psychology and and, you know, what are the mechanisms in terms of undoing our conditioning because at least for us johanna and i we definitely approached permaculture and living on the land as a spiritual practice it was you know throwing ourselves essentially into the arms of nature uh, we lived in a yurt with two very small kids we didn't have any running water um, you know, we had a compost toilet, you know, a kind of off-grid life. And and the idea was that was an enforced reconnection because we knew we needed it and we knew we needed it to be quite a dramatic kind of severing of the ties of civilization for a while. And that was incredibly catalytic. However, there was still something in our conditioning that made us maintain that sense of separation we still felt like we were kind of looking at nature through a pane of glass and that somehow we still weren't welcome here and it's only in recent years when we've begun to really cultivate a synthesis between you know transpersonal psychological work really embodied um interoceptive meditation practice combined with this ecological lifestyle that life has really begun to unlock and it's you know i i now have a 
strongly felt sense of being here, of being allowed, of being part of life. I'm just interested to hear how that process unfolded for you once you discovered this spiritual path. Well, hearing the story of your family and your decision to live much more immersed in nature, much less technologically, and yet feeling for a time separate, I actually see that as in a way perversely hopeful. Because if it's possible to live that close to nature and still feel separate, the converse might also be true, that even people that are living in dense apartment towers with no possibility of even remotely approaching what you're describing, maybe they could actually feel connected, right? If it's possible to be right in nature and be disconnected, then maybe it's possible to be outside of nature and be connected because maybe the connection is about something deeper. You know, I live close to nature myself, nothing like what you're describing, but, you know, I have a large open area outside my house where I can go out and there's wetlands and birds and trails. And, and that's a real luxury. It's actually a kind of privilege, right? Well, to use the modern terminology, I'm privileged in that sense. I don't want to believe for my own reasons, uh, ethical reasons, that only people that have that privilege can feel connected to life. I want to believe that everybody that's alive can feel connected to life, no matter where they live. Now, what prevents that? In my case, and I suspect you're, you're referring to something like this a little bit, but in my case, it had a lot to do with my upbringing, uh, that there was a lot of harshness, and a lot of punishment and a lot of loss and death and a lot of chaos and and then a, a very strong kind of nihilistic, cynical attitude in my family. Uh, not everyone, but the key figures. And, and my body absorbed all that trauma, all that negativity, all that pessimism. So when I initially started to connect with my body, that's what I connected with. That's what I found. So of course it didn't feel real inviting, right? I, I didn't have the strong sense that, oh yeah, I really want to get in touch with my biology if it feels like this. And I can imagine living in a yurt surrounded by all that you know, beauty, so deeply connected with nature and still feeling like there's a resistance. I'm not ready. I can't feel comfortable yet. So, you know, we need to work with these conditioned patterns and even people that had fairly sane families. And there are some, I understand. I don't know too many of them uh, here where I happen to live. Um, but, you know, I'm told they exist. And uh, <laughs> even people that were raised with some level of sanity are still traumatized by the culture because we're told that we only count if we succeed and if we have money and if we look the right way. And if we, you know, we don't count for being alive, that's not enough. Uh, we only count if we can prove ourselves in society some way. Yeah, I think society in and of itself is traumatic. Definitely. You know, when you live in a culture of separation, there are levels of trauma, obviously, and some people and some um, some sections of society have, you know, much greater trauma piled upon trauma. But I think we're all traumatized because we live as if we are separate and we remove ourselves physically from the living earth. And even the more proximal traumas, the ones like I experienced as a little toddler in my own family, are manifestations of that larger trauma, right? And, and if you look at less privileged groups that, like you say, have trauma piled upon trauma, that too is a manifestation of that fundamental attitude that civilization has taken toward nature. 
Well, again, there's a kind of, there is some good news in this, which is that our immediate trauma, whatever it is, whether it came from our families or just from the culture, is available for us to examine, to embrace in a certain sense, to see as a product of life, right? Like what happens to living organisms when they start to live the way that humans have done? This is what happens. I mean, that's an organic consequence. It's as biological and natural as everything else. Like this is the organic system's attempt to deal with this very bizarre context that it's that humanity has created for itself. It's like actually doing the best it can to make sense of it. And it doesn't look very healthy and it's probably not, but it is the attempt of our systems to cope. And it's kind of like an autoimmune condition in an ordinary body, right? The, something is going on that's not serving the body, but on a certain level, the immune system obviously kind of has this idea that this is what's needed. And we're, our whole culture is living that way. We know something's wrong and the, the response to it is actually just making things worse. But we have direct access to it immediately right here in these bodies right now. So then the question is, how do we find the safety and the supportiveness to go inward and to feel the horrible reverberations of all these generations of trauma uh, and the current trauma and everything else, you know, how do we find the sense of like, that's going to be okay to do. Uh, I'm not going to go crazy. I'm not going to kill myself or somebody else. Uh, I'm not going to you know, have a heart attack. Uh, I'm not going to be unable to cope, etc. You know, how can we feel like it's actually okay and actually nurturing and safe to go into this organism that's still reverberating with so much. And I don't have, you know, an easy answer to that. What I do believe is that biology and nature and life, whatever the terminology is that we use, wants us to come home. You know, there's a call to return home. And part of what keeps people away is resistance to that call. Like, I think everybody senses it, but it's kind of like a, a strange form of avoidant attachment where even when the parent reaches to you, if you're too traumatized, you'll turn away, right? Because you don't trust that parent. And what we've done is we've projected our unreliable parenting, whether it was our individual parents or the culture at large, we've, reject, we've projected that onto life, onto our own biology, onto the biosphere, or at least that's what we're doing when we resist. And it's like, I can feel this call to come home to my body, but I resist it because I don't trust the call. Well, you know, that's a deep psychological problem, right? That's really on a deep level that words can't actually touch. I mean, you know, I can say, well, you know what, I'm safe, nature's supportive, you know, there's oxygen out here, you know, the biosphere has been lasting for billions of years, and, you know, we seem to be disrupting it in a major way, but there's a pretty good chance it's resilient enough to put up with even us, you know, et cetera. I can say all that, but the the dimension, the the domain on which the resistance is occurring is, you know, way older, you know, it's ancient in the sense of like, it goes back into our ancestry and it's ancient in the sense that it goes way back into preverbal or early childhood. And we cannot touch it by talking to it. You can't tell a two-year-old, you know, you're okay. What you can do though, is you can hold it. And we can, and this is where the, you know, ability to take conscious guidance to, bring our consciousness to bear, to use it intelligently, we can use our own individual personal consciousness to meet our bodies with a quality of embrace, forgiveness, compassion, and acceptance, no matter how much pain there is in there, no matter how much sympathetic activation there is, we can hold it like a struggling and fussing child and say, I love you, I love you, I love you, over and over again. The prefrontal cortex, the verbal apparatus can do that. 
and it actually has an effect. You know, I doubt it's sufficient by itself to just repeat. And it's not the words, I love you, that matter. It's the feeling of, oh, my gosh, I actually do. I love this organism. I love this living. I love this world. It's actually here. It's, I think, kind of in all of us who aren't so deluded that we're just completely, you know, current, divorced from that. But anybody that's remotely sensitive will just feel these vast, you know, springs of love in their interior once they feel safe enough to start bringing it forth. And it has to, I think, be done incrementally. And it really helps to have supportive, you know, counselors and people that can guide us. I mean, I don't think it's very easy to do by ourselves, um, but it is doable. And that's the good news. And I, I would like to believe that I could be isolated in a nursing home or living in some, you know, high rise tower surrounded by dozens of other high rise towers. And I could reach in and find life you know, loving itself in my own organism anywhere under any circumstance, even in great pain, even in great uncertainty. You know, and I think we've had historical examples. Nelson Mandela comes to mind of people that have tapped into something when they were in very difficult circumstances. I was just thinking of Viktor Frankl. When Perfect. That. Yeah, exa exactly. People like that. So what, we all are human. They were no more human than us or no less. So we can do it. We can yeah what came up for me then was safety and trust and and actually this deepening beyond the relative to something fundamental so fundamental safety fundamental trust and for me that's been a process of um of sensing into that through my body but into something bigger than me you know into whatever we want to call that um i tend to call it nature or life but like any relationship that's a a process that only becomes trustworthy through consistent repetitive trustworthy behavior or you know results expectations met so that once we begin to learn how to tune into something fundamentally grounded and and maybe we have to go through um, many stages of relative grounding before we can get to that. So nervous system regulation um, to all of these practices that are to do with engaging the, you know, the parasympathetic so that we can begin to settle within our organism but but then there's something deeper than that uh, at least my experience is that there's something deeper than that and when you can trust into that the container of that is so vast that then there is space to be with this conditioning this this held on to intergenerational millennia deep conditioning that we're holding in our physiology but i don't think you can well my experience is that you can't do it the other way around you can't just lean into that you can you get some you get some relief from a, a talking therapy for example and i've you know i've experienced that myself and it's extremely relieving however it remains at some kind of relatively surface level and that only when we start to really connect into that primal safety of the embrace of life of being allowed to be here unconditionally and being actively welcomed here as a participant then you can begin to loosen some of that stuckness that psychological conditioning what are your thoughts on that what comes to mind for me is a kind of metaphor or analogy. I'm never quite sure how to use those two words, one or the other, maybe both. But first I'll say that that deepest layer that you're referring to, you know, to get in touch with that, I, my impression of that is that it's ongoing in all of us all the time, right? Okay, so that's good news too, because it's there. You can't 
convince someone of that if they haven't gotten in touch with it. But the more we get in touch with it, the more we realize this isn't something that I'm developing and building. It's something that I'm finding that is always there. Yeah. Okay. So now to the metaphor. So I've been married a little over 30. Well, I've been with my wife a little over 30 years. And, um, you know, we both came from difficult upbringings and it the beginning, it was a very stormy relationship. I think we always had a strong bond, but there was a lot of conflict and we had trouble for a long time. You know, that might be where many of us start, right? Like we're in this relationship with reality, but we're having a hard time with it and we don't trust it and we're fighting with it and uh, we're, we're very sensitive to it and rea we react strongly and poorly. Well, time goes on. And if you're committed to trying to make the darn thing work, you gradually start to notice that, you know what, this person is still here after all this time. Like reality is still here. My body is still here. It's like still with me. I'm still hanging in there. So there's that length of time consistency that helps. There's also the day-to-day, -day, like... I say, yes, we had this conflicted relationship, you know, et cetera, and we did. But, you know, if I went back and replayed that, there would be moments of high conflict and and then long periods where we were just hanging out together, right? And actually, and that was actually what the relationship was built on, were those long periods of just being together. So I think that this task of building a better relationship with reality is a long haul, like a, a long-term intimate partnership between two people. And that we look to the consistency over the long time and we notice those moments of just quiet companionship. And we begin to trust these moments of quiet companionship, not with the sense that they'll never end or that the conflict won't return, but that while they're here, they count. And so we, you know, and I think this is Peter Levine, you know, from Somatic Experiencing, it's, I'm probably tapping into his language, you know, like we look for the islands of safety, which are moment by moment. So they're temporal islands of safety, moments of relative calm and relaxation. And then, of course, there are spatial islands of safety, parts of my body that don't feel quite as knotted and, and reactive. And so we start to orient toward the islands of safety and then visit the more chaotic realms as we feel capable and ready and love them, too but always with one foot still in the safety, right? So we're not getting lost in the chaotic swirl of things. And that's a process too. And, you know, you, you don't, you know, commit to someone in a marriage or whatever the, you know, it doesn't have to be a marriage, but, you know, you don't form a long-term intimate partnership with someone. And then the next day, you know, everything is perfect and you're blissfully in love, you know, happily ever after. That's a fairy tale. The reality is that you build it bit by bit over time based on consistency and commitment and faith that this person actually is doing their best. I mean, it may not look like it a lot of the time, but but they probably are. And I'm doing my best, even though it surely, surely doesn't look like it a lot of the time, but I'm trying and we're both, you know, working on this. And, and I think our relationship with reality is much like that. Not that reality is actually, you know, it's just itself. But we're tangling with it and it kind of tosses back whatever we toss out. You know, if we toss out a lot of conflict, we tend to get a lot of conflict back. So we're reality is like this wonderful mirror of whatever relationship we're bringing to it. And the more we orient toward those moments when we're just, you know, not tossing grenades into the darn thing, but we're actually handing it a flower or two, the more we orient to those moments, you know, the more we begin to settle down and begin to have faith. You know what? This is actually okay. I mean, it may hurt like hell. It may be stormy. I'm going to end up, you know, dead. My body's going to rot or burn up or something. You know, like this is all going to come to what by conventional terms is a terrible end. But in the meantime, it's this beautiful dance, right? And, and, and we can be okay with this and we don't have to, you know, feel so dismayed that the thing is going to end or I might get sick or I have pain in my back, right? We don't have to, we can just say, yeah, this is all part of it. And, and I, you know, just like in a long-term relationship and your partner doesn't look the way they used to and, 
you know, maybe they've got health issues and, and, and we're neither one of us more as capable as we once were. And that's only going to get, you know, more true over time. But you don't say, well, you know what, this, this is, person isn't worth it anymore. They've gotten too old or frail or too, you know, this or that. You say, I'm, I'm committed to loving this even as we go down together, <laughs> you know, into, into entropy. Yeah, so I take on it. I mean, it just takes it takes that quality of just hanging in there and doing our best and loving it as much as we can whenever we're able and taking help wherever it comes. And and to, to try to jump past all that and get right into the vastness. I mean, you know, that that's what they call spiritual bypassing. Right. And we've got to work our way into it. So. Yeah, I think my only point with that. I mean, I think that's a, a, a beautiful analogy, stroke metaphor, whichever it is. Um, I think my only point about touching into the this kind of fundamental groundedness is that it needs to be a kind of both and. So we're cultivating safety while we're leaning in to difficulty and it's a, it's a dance and that if we neglect one, you know, there's so many therapies and approaches out there that just, you know, like there's a big movement of embodiment at the moment. And in my coaching practice, I've experienced several clients recently that have got really highly developed interoceptive skills and are totally overwhelmed by them now. They feel engulfed by their sensations and their emotions because whoever they've been working with previously has not been also facilitating this contact into fundamental safety, into this trustworthy, these trustworthy islands of safety. Um, and I think once we realize conceptually and then start to have a, an experiential practice of that, it seems to me that it's not as sticky as one might think if you're engaging with this in a truly holistic manner. I think you can spend your whole life in cognitive behavioral therapy and feel relatively okay, but still fundamentally lost. To go back to the relationship idea, we could look at the vast sense of presence in our bodies and minds and reality itself as being whatever it is in consciousness that makes two people or a group of people or anybody want to bond and become intimate and to know one another. Like that's a universal principle that transcends any individual relationship. It's just built into reality. So there are, I think, ways of noticing something that goes beyond working with the details, something that's more enduring and universal, uh, even in something as apparently local as an intimate partnership. If we wanted to look to biology though, you know, if we wanted to look to that, you know, one of the problems with only going right into this organism is that this organism is a fiction right? The individual organism is, the word itself you know, it has meaning to us because of our conceptual framing, but it has no ultimate meaning. The organism is the ecosphere and the ecosphere is the organism. They are the same thing. So if all we're looking at is this little local weather pattern and we're trying to find everything we need within it, it's very unlikely we're going to find it all there. But if we look at the bigger picture and say, well, you know, this, this organism is connected to every growing thing on the planet and to the atmosphere and the water, and, and that all of this is hundreds of millions of years in the making, and no matter what we do, it's going to keep going hundreds of millions of years in the future in some form or another, and uh, it's, we know a lot about it, but it's not really comprehensible if we're honest with ourselves. And there is something vast and powerful here that's a whole lot bigger. And 
you know, we can turn to that and and relieve the idea that it's all on me and it's all got to be found within me. And I have to, you know, that's why it was actually kind of a revelation for me to realize that, yeah, okay, I've got all this childhood trauma and I kind of have to deal with it and so on. But that's just like the tip of the iceberg of what we're really working with here. And once I realized that, I mean, rather than seeing, oh my God, there's this much bigger problem here. Now what do I do? Instead, there was a sense of like, oh, you know, this is, I mean, this is archetypal. There's a, there's a kind of story going on here that's just beyond me. And all I really can do is work on my little bit of it. And then also have some faith that the bigger picture is working itself out with all of us doing our little bits here and there. And somehow or another, you know, it's like that poem, The Desiderata by Max Ehrman, you know, whether or not it is clear to you, no doubt the universe is unfolding as it should, Right that kind of mentality. Um, that's my way of working with all of this. I mean, I quite agree. If we if we focus just on what's going on in this little body, uh, it could actually be quite terrifying because what we're doing then is we're identifying with this little body, which is, I mean, you know, if you're going to identify with something, you know, choose a huge monolith of granite, something enduring. You don't choose a little biological swirl that's kind of, you know, that's quite vulnerable and very temporary. So choose a moon or, you know, a sun. Don't choose one of these things. It's just not reliable enough. <laughs> you know, you've been working, developing and both personally and with the groups that you've worked with on mindful biology for for a decade now is that correct yes. something like yes. that I'd, I'd love to just hear you know what the latest iteration of that is like what's exciting for you at the moment some of the some of the ways in which this work is is facilitating your groups listening to their calling. Yeah, I'd be happy to. I appreciate the opportunity. Um, so I have been working on it for at least 10 years. It started when I was teaching biology at a yoga institute to people that were using yoga for various things, including just asana practice. But it really goes way back. I think all of this has been a lifelong process so that it does tie in with a lot of my personal work. And I've been organizing in my mind and somewhat on the website and so on, you know, what are the components that go into this? Because it's not just one thing. I've been doing it long enough. I've gone in hundreds of, I've literally given hundreds of different talks about this, each one of them covering it from a different aspect. And at some point after Given that many different talks, I started to think, you know, there have to be some organizing principles behind all this. Uh, it was starting to feel pretty scattered. And I have recently kind of zeroed in on three. It began with using fairly straightforward biological information, nothing controversial, stuff that we've known maybe for centuries about how the body is organized and uh, you know, its anatomy and maybe more recent knowledge about its physiology, using that information to very sensitively feel, you know, interoceptively into the body, into the systems. And so that I can, you know, tune into my esophagus. If I don't know an esophagus is there, you know, I may feel something there, but there's a richer feeling of it when I know that it's there and, and what it does, right? That, that kind of thing. And that can be carried out in a incredibly detailed way throughout the entire body. So that's what I would call the mindful part, you know, the full of mind biology. Another aspect of it is the non-dual part. You know, like, yeah, the organism doesn't exist, really. It's part of the biosphere and immersed in the biosphere and communicating constantly with the biosphere. And so there is no me here and life out there. There's just life everywhere and then a kind of little local experience of it. Uh, and there's plenty in biological science that can support that realization. And, um, and so that's the non-dual part. And, and of course, it's 
important to make it not just conceptual, but to also have practices. And it's not hard to do, really. I mean, one can just simply sit with eyes closed and say, okay, you're separate from the environment. So show me where the boundary is. Find it for yourself, right? You define the envelope that separates you from your body with your eyes closed, not with some idea about you have a skin surface or anything, but see if you can actually localize that boundary in your own consciousness. You know, you can't, right? I mean, it's, it's not doable. I invite anyone that's never given that practice to try to try it, but where's the envelope? So that's just like one very direct experience that we can get in our own biological system. So that's the non-dual bit. And then the third bit, which is, I think, in some sense, what's most needed is to look at our situation as organic beings. All the pain that we suffered, the grief, the aging, the inevitable mortality, uh, the trauma, the uproar of the whole experience, how chaotic and vulnerable we feel, and to see it in a more neutral light without less, without so much identification that it ought to be this way or that way, to see it more as a pageant of life in, in flow and process, and that aging has a biological reason, and mortality has a biological function, and pain serves a biological purpose, and our emotions, you know, are meant at heart to serve biological ends, and that it's all somehow a manifestation of a deep quality of intelligence in the cosmos. And I heard Richard Miller, who's a teacher, does the iRest program. I don't know how widely known he is. He's pretty well known in California. But he once said that the neurotic behaviors that we show so abundantly are forms of degraded wisdom, that in fact, our system is trying to respond intelligently but we haven't quite figured out the skillful approach. And so we're coming at things in ways that tend to make the situation more difficult. To bring this sense of compassion, like everybody, even the most violent and tormented and destructive person is on some level trying to solve the problem of life. Life is moving through that person in its own way, trying to find some foothold to grow as life does. And that everything that happens to us is ultimately serving this very profound desire of life to grow and manifest and create. And so that would be the heartful quality. You know, so there's mindful biology, non-dual biology, and heartful biology of bringing a quality of heart to all the difficult stuff, our own individual difficulties, the global difficulties, and to realize that something is trying to work all this out, uh, whatever is behind it, uh, some emergent process, who knows, but it's got a kind of intelligence that is something we can have a certain amount of faith in and definitely some love for. And so if we can bring our minds to bear on the body in this very sensitive way, dissolve our sense of separation and develop a quality of you know, sort of faith and love for reality exactly as it is, then we'll be in a good position to really reside more consistently in that deep sense of awareness that, that, you know, that you're referring to. Because we're talking here about dealing with all these inner conditioned conflicts, etc., and I have been struggling with that stuff my whole life, trying to fix it, resolve it, break it down, get beyond it. And very, very recently, somehow or another, that no longer seems necessary. That what's more important is not to undo my conditioning, but to see how much larger I am than that conditioning how much more there is to me than just this little wounded piece. And, and then the wounded piece can be accepted and there isn't this sense of struggle and interminable need for therapy, etc. Um, not that therapy isn't helpful, but it doesn't have that same quality of like, I've just got to fix all this before I can get on with my life, right? 
And I think all of us could use a big dose of like, let's just be okay as we are and go from here. To sign up to Will's excellent classes and to read and watch more about mindful biology, please visit mindfulbiology.org. I'm Dan McTiernan. I'm a transpersonal psychology coach and an embodied meditation teacher. And together with my wife, Johanna, we run Earthbound, a coaching organisation working at the fertile edge between transpersonal psychology, embodiment and permaculture. To find out more, please visit our website, earthbound.fi.